In Acts chapter 1, we'll read a passage of Scripture beginning in verse 6 down through verse 8. And when they therefore were come together, they asked Jesus, saying, Lord, is it now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he just said unto them, the time is not your business. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and under the uttermost part of the earth. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the Word of God. The title of today's message is this, Fan or Follower. It's important to understand the confusion that still causes the Jewish people to stumble. Zechariah 9.9, the Bible tells the Jews that their Messiah would come in humility, riding over the crest of the Mount of Olives on a donkey's colt, bringing salvation. Then five chapters later in Zechariah 14, we see the details of the Jewish Messiah coming triumphantly as the Lord of God's armies and power and glory, as King of kings and Lord of lords, and that all the world would worship Him. Well, how do you balance the two? Well, as I've told you before, the rabbis have come up with all sorts of theories, one of which is they have concluded that there must be two messiahs. One, Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah after the order of Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. The other, Messiah ben David, Messiah ben David, Messiah of the, the, the family of David, the king who will rule in power and glory. Now, we know that there aren't two Messiahs, but one Messiah who comes twice. Once as the sacrificial Lamb of God, fulfilling the prophecies of Genesis 22 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and Daniel 9 and countless other places. And then we'll come again as King of Kings to rule and to reign. What no one knows is how much time will pass between those two events. This period that was hidden in the Old Testament and that the Jews in fact could not see this valley between the two mountain peaks of prophecy, Zechariah 9.9, coming humbly, bringing salvation, and Zechariah 14 at Armageddon, coming as king of kings. Folks, the church age, this age in which we live is that valley. It is hidden entirely in the Old Testament. That is another of the many reasons that we know the church will not be here during the tribulation as God deals exclusively between the church, the ecclesia, and Israel. After the resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with His disciples, filling in many of the blanks and teaching them about how He was foretold throughout the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Now it was time for Him to return to heaven. They crossed the Kidron Valley and found themselves once again on the Mount of Olives. Now understand, it was just about 40, 45 days before that Jesus had ridden over that same mount making His uh, Zechariah 9-9 fulfillment. 
Now he was there with them in his glorified body back on the Mount of Olives. And the question that triggered in their mind was, Lord, are you now going to establish the kingdom back to Israel? And notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say, oh, no, 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 no. That's not a literal kingdom. It's only a spiritual one to be held in your hearts. He also did not say, yep, now is the time. Get ready. He did say, it's not for you to know when. Simply know this, that until then, you are to bear witness of me, beginning at Jerusalem and Judea, and then into Samaria, and finally into the uttermost extent of the world. But not yet. First, go back to Jerusalem and wait. I'll send the Holy Spirit to empower you. He'll not only be with you, but He will live in you. And Jesus then ascended straight up into heaven. I can imagine them with their heads cocked back, gawking into the heavens, staring straight up in a hypnotic gaze when two messengers from heaven, dressed in white, said, Hey, you bunch of rednecks. Hey, Galileans. Why are you standing here gawking into space? This same Jesus will come again just if you've seen Him go. Now get back on into Jerusalem and get ready. And they did. Some ten days later, on the day of the high summer feast called Shavuot, or we know it as Pentecost, Jews from all over the world, speaking just as many languages as lands in which they dwelt, had returned to Jerusalem in obedience to the law, keeping this summer feast unto the Lord. And of course, you know the events of Acts 2. They did, in fact, receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. And this time, instead of the pillar of flame dwelling above the tabernacle as it did in the wilderness, signifying the Shekinah, the glory of God, indwelling that place, now these pillars of flame stood over the heads of the disciples, signifying that they were now the earthly tabernacles filled with the glory of God. And they boldly proclaimed the gospel that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah. And His suffering, His death, His burial, and now they could point to the empty tomb proved all those things. And 3,000 believed that day and were baptized. And they continued daily, the Scripture says, with one accord in the temple. What a church. Jewish disciples of Jesus all meeting daily in the temple complex, staying by night with other Jewish family or friends or sleeping in the fields as these Jews recognized had only planned on being there for a few days for the summer feast and then returning home. Then in Acts 3, we see Peter and John healing a lame man as they were going into the temple at the hour of prayer. And once again, having got everybody's attention, they proclaimed Jesus. And 5,000 more were convinced and trusted that Jesus of Nazareth was, in fact, the promised Messiah. As Peter preached in Acts 3, verses 19 through 21, he said this, "'Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out.'" When the times of refreshing shall come, Psalm 110, He's going to ascend and be at the right hand of the Father until all His enemies will be His footstool. The times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord 
And the Father shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until another Jewish frame for the uh, phrase for the age of the Messiah, what we would call the millennial reign of Christ, until the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. Again, let me remind you, the church was not spoken about in the Old Testament. Of course, Gentiles could come to faith through Israel, which would be that lighthouse drawing the Gentile world into the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, the thing that they are pointing to that was referenced throughout the Old Testament was not the rapture of the church. They still weren't even aware of what they were. At this point in time, 100% Jewish believers made up that assembly that we call the New Testament church. And they were looking for, and Peter was preaching that if Israel had repented and turned to God at that time, that King Jesus would come back and restore the kingdom then. That's what they were focused of, because that's what was being talked about throughout all the mouths of the holy prophets since the world began. But, again, 5,000 more were saved, and the church grew, and they were one big family in Jerusalem awaiting the Lord's return, Acts 5, 42, and daily in the temple and in every house. They lived in the houses. They had house churches. They had small group fellowships. They met together in the, in the temple daily to worship Yahweh and the Lord Jesus Christ. They ceased not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. Now, again, these people had come planning maybe three, day, three weeks of, of being gone from home. If they lived up in the Galilee, or if they lived uh, in uh, Greece, uh, if they lived in Babylon, you, know, you would have had to plan for the amount of time to travel. Even from the north, living up in, in Nazareth, it would have taken about six days to walk from Nazareth to get down to Jerusalem. So if you're planning on attending the feast, you're saying, well, honey, we're going to be gone for three weeks. It's going to take us a week to get down there. We'll probably be there celebrating uh, for about five days or so. And then we're going to turn around and have to come back. So, you know, we need to take enough clothes and changes of underwear for about three weeks. We need to take enough cash with us for about three weeks, and then we'll be back. But they got there. They heard the message of Peter. They saw the, the miracle of, of, the, of the flames above the heads of the disciples. And they saw the empty tomb, and they knew that it was true. And they trusted Jesus. So instead of returning to their homes, they were there waiting. Jesus is going to come back again any day. And they had to stay with others. Great hospitality. They stayed with friends. They stayed with family. Again, they stayed around the fields. And as time went on, weeks and months, perhaps even a couple of years, they didn't have an ATM card. They couldn't go just draw more money out and pay their bills. They would planned on being gone three, four, five weeks at most. Now they're here for months. Boy, there were needs that needed to be met. So you see in Acts chapter 5 and Acts 6, you see Barnabas and some of the other great saints selling some of their possessions and giving it to the church so they could feed all the church family as they were together. By the way, that was not establishing communism as a political, governmental, economic system. That was a church. There were needs within the church family. And when there are needs within the church family, again, that aren't brought on by bad behavior, sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, we get in the way of God trying to get someone's attention. If someone is wasting their money on lottery tickets, we're not supposed to be there to bail them out. But if we've got brothers and sisters in Christ that are working hard, doing things the right way, trying to make ends meet, and all of a sudden their radiator goes out in their car or the hot water heater goes out in the house and they don't have the money to pay for it, guess who's supposed to come together and help? That's where we come in. 
And that's all that was going on here. But here these Jews were, this, this New Testament church, gathering together daily, waiting for the Lord's return. But when was Jesus going to return? They didn't know. We don't know. They were being obedient, so they thought, in waiting. But were they? Jesus had told them that they were to bear witness of Him, not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but in Samaria, and under the uttermost extent of the world. But they were comfortable there as one body. And God used a little heat, a little discomfort to get them on the move. In Acts 7, we see the first martyr listed in Scripture. We see Stephen stoned to death for his strong stand against the Sanhedrin. By Acts 8, that kind of took the lid off the bottle. And persecution, open persecution, was now accepted and ramped up as we see that great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Where did God say they were supposed to be? Judea, Samaria, uttermost extent of the world. But they were still at Jerusalem. Great persecution caused them to scatter throughout all the regions. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went forth preaching uh, the Word of God. God got them on the move. As Pastor Dan likes to say, uh, they got pinched a little bit, weren't comfortable. And as a result of this persecution, which God allowed, they fulfilled God's command to bear witness across the world. First point I want you to take hold of this morning is this. First, let me ask you a question. Would you say that Stephen's martyrdom was a good thing? On the surface, I wouldn't. Stephen's a member of the church. He's a man of God. He's a faithful, holy man. He's out preaching the gospel, standing up against error, promoting the truth. He winds up being stoned to death. I would say that that wasn't necessarily a good thing. However, that planted a seed of doubt and eventual faith in a young man that was standing there named Saul of Tarsus. God ultimately did use Stephen's stoning for his good. Would you say that the persecution of the church in Jerusalem was a good thing? Well, as a, as a Christian, as a member of the church, I'd say no. I don't want to see the church persecuted. However, God used it to get the Jewish church out of its comfort zone. And because of fear of being uh, harassed or arrested or tortured or killed, it caused them to leave that comfortable place there around Jerusalem. And they took the message on the road to the rest of the world. Note, ladies and gentlemen, that Romans 8.28 doesn't say that all things are good. It says that God uses all things together for good to them that love God, who are the called according to His purpose. Consider some of the great trials of believers and how God has used them for His glory and ultimately good. Daniel chapter 3, we see Nebuchadnezzar established universal emperor worship throughout his empire. You could have other gods. They were all polytheistic. That was just fine. But Nebuchadnezzar was to be not only the king of kings, but he was to be lord of all lords. 
And he made that command that when the band played every day, everyone was to fall down and worship his golden image erected in the plains of Shinar. And many compromised. It was the easy thing to do. Hey, rather than risk uh, fading the heat, we'll just, we don't really believe in this, but, but, but we'll just bow down anyway so we'll not get harassed. And apparently, most everyone did. But there were three Jewish men who could not and who would not. And understand that these men were established magistrates. In Daniel 2, we see the account where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been called upon to interpret uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And as a result, they wound up proving that they did have uh, connections with the Most High God. And they served as a respected part of his cabinet. These men, no doubt, had a pretty comfortable lifestyle at this point. They weren't like the Jews in bondage in Egypt. They were a part of the executive staff for Nebuchadnezzar. And as such, Nebuchadnezzar gave him a second chance because the first time they refused to fall down. So he said, you boys come to my office. Let's have a talk. Perhaps you misunderstood me when I gave the order earlier. And they responded to him in this manner. Chapter 3, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered Nebuchadnezzar and said, O king, we are not careful or we're not going to mince words. We're not going to take care in how we answer thee. We're not going to compromise in our answer in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of the night. They were going to be delivered one way or the other. Either they were going to be burned to death and in heaven or God was going to bring them through. He's going to deliver them. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And then was Nebuchadnezzar furious. His face turned red and he clenched his fists. And he spake and commanded they should heat the fiery furnace to its maximum capacity. In fact, it was so hot that some of the most mighty men in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, guard, palace guard, were consumed by the flames as they went to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace. Now, we all know this story. We grew up learning about it in Sunday school. But ladies and gentlemen, this isn't a story. This is a historical account that God has given to us. These three men stood face to face with the most powerful man on the planet. And all they had to do to return home to the good life as magistrates in the king's court to enjoy the comforts of this life was to compromise and to bow down to the golden image and compromise the truth. And they refused. And ladies and gentlemen, they risked more than being deplatformed. They missed more than being kicked off Facebook or Twitter. They, miss, they risked more than being passed over for a promotion or being fired or being called names and marginalized. They faced a most certain and fearful and painful death. But God was glorified by their witness. And as in this case, He chose to deliver them. And at the end of the day, Nebuchadnezzar declared, 
Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, make a decree that every people and nation and language that speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses destroyed because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. And at the end of the day, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wound up getting a big promotion. Let me ask you, ladies and gentlemen, was the situation where they faced a fiery furnace, if they didn't compromise, would you say that that was a good thing? No. I hope we're not faced with something like that in the near future. Was pressure to conform a good thing? Again, my natural response would be no. But God used this for good and God was glorified. But understand it doesn't always turn out that way with a superficial, temporal, happy ending for the saint. Let me give you another illustration. In 1536, say preacher, brilliant man, gifted in many language, languages named William Tyndale, that had sought to translate the Bible into English for the English people. He wound up fleeing England, moved to Germany, lived with Martin Luther for a period of time, wound up ultimately publishing the Bible, or the New Testament at least into English, was working on the rest of the Bible when he was tricked, he was set up, he was arrested, he was brought back before King Henry VIII, and he was commanded to recant. All he had to do to go back to a normal life was to stop, to promise to stop, trying to interpret the Bible and translate it into the English language. That's all he had to do. But he refused to do so. And he was taken into the center of town. He was tied to a stake. He was strangled to death. And then his body burned. What was his crime? Was he a bank robber? No. Was he a murderer? No. Was he some sort of a, a scoundrel and a criminal? No. His only crime was he wanted to publish God's Word in English so everybody could read it for themselves. History says that his last words before he was killed were these, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And amazingly, ladies and gentlemen, although he died that day, Within two years, the King of England did, for other reasons, in fact, publish the Bible into English, which led to the Puritans and led to the pilgrims and ultimately led to our being here. By the way, this segues nicely into that. But let me just say this. Would you, would you say that that was a good thing? Was William Tyndale being arrested for publishing the Bible a good thing? No, I would say not. I think that's wrong. I think that's an improper use of civil authority was being strangled to death in the town square and having your body burned, a good thing. Again, if I get to vote, I'll pass on that one. I would much prefer the rapture. Otherwise, a nice, ripe old age. In fact, hopefully, I will go in with 50-yard line seats as Oklahoma State upsets Oklahoma for the first time in like a decade. In a super win, I'll be so happy my heart just stops. It'd be perfect. You say, Pastor, do you believe in miracles? Obviously, I do. 
1607, a group of separatists met in Scrooby, England. They were criminals. What was their crime? They wanted to meet together and have their own Bible studies. As a result of Tyndale's work, with the Bible being available in English, they could read the Bible for themselves, and they were convinced that the Church of England was wrong. They wanted to have their own church services. And that was a crime. It was a capital offense. Ultimately, they wound up having to leave the country. They fled to the Netherlands. Ultimately, they wound up boarding a little ship called the Mayflower and winding up planting the seeds of what we now call the United States of America when they landed in Cape Cod in 1620. Folks, was being persecuted for wanting to have your own home Bible study a good thing? I would say no. In fact, I hope you all are studying the Bible every day at home. I hope that your only nourishment is not just here on Sunday mornings for Sunday school and, and auditorium class and Sunday morning church and Wednesday nights. I hope you take advantage of our resources on our website. And more than that, I hope you are listening to good Christian radio. And I hope you're reading the Bible daily for yourself. I hope you're getting together as couples and families and spending time together in fellowship with the Lord. I hope you're doing that. I don't think that's a bad thing. It was against the law for them. Was being forced to flee their homeland a good thing? Again, I would say no. But ultimately, as we see, Romans 8.28 is in effect. The events individually weren't necessarily good, but God used all those things together for good. Ladies and gentlemen, there are countless other examples. But recognize this. Salvation is free to us. Now, it came at a great cost to the Lord Jesus. He who knew no sin became a sin offering on our behalf as the Creator took the sins of His creation on His own record and gave His perfect life to pay the debt for sin that we all owe. At any time, Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels It wasn't Roman soldiers that forced him on the cross. It wasn't the high priest that commanded he be nailed to the cross. It was his love for us that compelled him to that cross. He paid a heavy price. But salvation is free offered to each and every one of us. All we have to do is humble ourselves and by faith trust in him and receive it. However, being a disciple of Jesus comes with a cost. And Jesus said it would. John fifteen eighteen, his last night when he was with the disciples, before his arrest, he said, If the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. The world persecutes you, remember, it persecuted me first. If they've taken note over everything I've said, they're going to take note over everything that you say as well. John sixteen thirty three, he says this, In this world you could have tribulation. Is that what it says? In this world, you might occasionally experience tribulation. Is that what it says? What does it say, Christian? In this world, you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Ladies and gentlemen, think for a moment. Because we are suffering, that may be an assurance of our salvation. Because Jesus said we would, in fact, suffer tribulation while we're here. Ladies and gentlemen, the, crew, the, the Christian life is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. And as Dan and I have mentioned time and again, especially over the last months, going back to 
times prior to Thanksgiving, I can remember a message uh, that had some uh, similar uh, goals as what we're preaching this morning. We have been the only generation of believers ever whose faith has not cost them. Now, let me say this. Personally, I've enjoyed the comfort. I like it this way. If I got to vote, I like comfort. But honestly, let me ask you, is the church in America strong today? Like the church in Laodicea, oh, we've got beautiful buildings. Amazing, these buildings sit unused. If you are a school teacher, I appreciate you. I admire you. I have no doubt that you went into this career for a right reason. However, what is being taught in public education is not something that God smiles at. It's not like it was, old folks. When we were in school, things were different. And they were. Have you ever seen a a, a young person's penmanship these days? They aren't even taught how to write in cursive. When we were in school, we were forbidden from using calculators. And yes, youngsters, we did actually have calculators back in the old days. Now, they're to rely on calculators. Drive up to a restaurant or a drive through and, and hand the, uh, if, if the bill is $6.83, uh, hand them uh, $7. And then at the last minute, hand them three cents. After they've already keyed it in and watch them look at you. But they are taught that we need to be sensitive to gender neutrality and pronoun neutrality. And they were taught that CO2, rather than being plant fertilizer and food, and one of the main reasons we are alive, we're taught that we teach our kids that CO2 is a poison. And their parents are stupid, so don't listen to your parents because your parents don't know anything. You need to instruct your parents because you're smarter than they are. We're taught that rather than planet Earth being entrusted to man to steward over, we're taught that man is now a virus destroying planet Earth. And we need to reduce the population, and man is responsible for everything. We're taught the LGBTQ agenda. We're taught all sorts of things. We're taught 1619 history, that America is evil. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. Man has desired to rule the world. And youngsters, you listen as well. You need to listen. Man has desired to rule the world since day one. Began with Nimrod's effort for a global godless government. You go through history, whether it be the Pharaohs, whether it be the Caesars, whether it be Nebuchadnezzar, whether it be uh, Alexander the Great, whether it be Stalin, whether it be Adolf Hitler, whether it be the chairman in China now, whether it be George Soros and Bill Gates. By the way, in passing, anytime you hear Soros talk, believe him. He speaks the truth. He is an evil man. Every time you hear Gates talk, recognize he's lying. And he also is an evil man. But there was only one country that ever could have actually ruled the world. And that was the United States of America after World War II. We had more people under arms. We had some 90 aircraft carriers in total that we had produced during the war. Think about that for a moment. 
And we were the only country on planet Earth that had harnessed the atomic bomb. If America was evil, America could have ruled the world in 1946. But instead, America brought their troops home and rebuilt Europe and rebuilt Japan. Because America, not perfect, no country is. Anytime you get sinful, wicked man involved, we're going to mess it up because we've got covetous motives. We've got sinful desires. However, America has been the best country ever in world history. And that's what you need to recognize is they are working so diligently right now to destroy us. If they are successful, and ultimately they will be, what's going on right now does not surprise me. It has to happen. There will be global government for the last seven years. It's not going to fit together great. It's going to be like clay and metal and the feet of Daniel's image in Daniel 2. But there will be ten supermen, men like Soros behind the systems, pulling the strings, conspiring together, and will put forward their front man, this slick-talking super politician. And for a period of seven years, they will have control. In particular, the last three and a half years, he will be the global dictator, literally indwelt by Satan himself. This all has to happen. It just breaks my heart to see it happening to the United States of America. I know America is going to fall into line with godlessness. I had always hoped and assumed it would be after the rapture, which would make most sense. It breaks my heart to see us declining like we are now. But one of the reasons is because they've gotten control of our educational system and they are poisoning the minds of our children. America has been blessed. The church is the only church in history that has not been persecuted for their faith. But unfortunately, it's been to our peril is we are perhaps the weakest church, the most powerless church. Hey, we've got a lot of numbers. There'll be a lot of people online listening to some of those superstar pastors across the country today. But we have no power, and there's no evidence of Christianity anywhere in our country. This is Mount Arbel. It's on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee between Tiberias and Magdala. John 6, Jesus fed the 5,000 men with their wives and children from one boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish. Their response is they wanted to make him their king. Why? Did they believe he was really the promised Messiah? No. They liked him because he fed them lunch. And the next day they came back for more lunch. And Jesus chased them away with a hard spiritual truth. Understand this, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus doesn't want fans. Jesus wants followers. As everyone had left except the twelve, and Jesus looked at them and said, Are you guys going to leave too? Simon Peter said, Where will we go? You're the only one that speaks truth. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Ladies and gentlemen, if we handed out a pound of gold to every person that walked the aisle and got saved, we would have no problem finding insincere converts. If we handed out keys to a a Mercedes 
or to a Rolls Royce over every public profession of faith or gave someone the title to a home in Nichols Hills, we'd have no problem. The church would be full. We'd have lots of insincere converts. But God doesn't want insincere converts. He wants people to love Him and to trust Him because He truly is the Lord, not because of some bribe in this life. That word witness in Acts 1.8. We use it all the time lovingly. We talk about, hey, have you witnessed to someone? Hopefully you do. Hopefully your life is a witness. Hopefully your life is a testimony. Hopefully the way you do business. Hopefully your honesty, your integrity, your fidelity to your mate and everything else. Hopefully your, your conduct altogether is a testimony, is a witness that you are in fact a, a follower of Jesus. But the Greek word for witness is martus. And it's from this word that we derive the English word martyr. The greatest evidence of the existence, or let me say this, the greatest evidence to the lost world of the existence of the invisible, unseen God whom we profess to follow is our willingness to suffer shame or ridicule or even marginalization or torture or death rather than compromise what we know is the truth. Let that sink in for a moment. I want you to know that every message that Dan or I preach that God gives us to share with our congregation here in Florida and across the country to other believers... It's because we are Christians just like everybody else. We're no different than any of you. God has just called us to this position of shepherd. But we have the ability to whine just like anybody else. And we have to search the Scripture for truth to strengthen us and our family so that we can carry on another day. And we share that with our flock. Feeding, teaching, leading, guiding. Tell you what, I don't know if your mom, I'll date myself, ever gave you castor oil. Some of the things that we have to consume for our health are not necessarily pleasant. This message is not a pleasant message. It wasn't pleasant for me to study it and remind myself. It's not pleasant to preach. I'd much rather be preaching your best life now. But all preachers are going to give an account to the Lord Jesus one day. And if they truly are saved and not charlatans, they'll give an account for their faithfulness and how they shepherded the people that God entrusted unto them. Let me repeat that again because it needs to be repeated. The greatest visual evidence to the lost world of the existence of the invisible, unseen God whom we profess to follow is our willingness to suffer shame, ridicule, marginalization, even torture and death rather than compromise what we know to be true. The book, Live Not By Lies. Matter of fact, we've got several cases these ordered. 
We're going to have them available here in a couple of weeks. In fact, we might even direct a series of Sunday school lessons to be taught through these books by our Sunday school teachers. This is important. It deals with testimonies of Christians who live behind the Iron Curtain of Communism in the Soviet Union and Soviet bloc countries. By the way, you youngsters are being taught that socialism is a good thing, that everyone is equal. Socialism is communism. And here's what that means. Rather than you owning your own house and your own car and making your own decisions, the government owns everything. You look at the website of the World Economic Forum. Bill Gates, George Soros, uh, Prince Charles, they openly state that by 2030, you'll own nothing. But you'll be happy, don't worry. doesn't work that way. By the way, you heard Mr. Gates telling us that we won't be needing to eat meat in the near future. I had a giant ribeye on Friday night. Communism, it's amazing. We want to continue the 1619 Project and look back at a sin that we corrected almost two centuries ago. Keep bringing that up. Rather than recognize in the last century when communism rescued the free people in Russia, somewhere between 20 and 40 million dissidents were put to death. Preachers are dissidents. Professors and school teachers are dissidents. If you have critical thinking skills, you're a dissident. If you do not conform to the state message, you'll be re-educated or killed. And you think, oh, I'm one of the good guys. I'm on their side now. You're going to be the one of the first ones shot. Because they'll look at you and say, if you betrayed your prior country, we can't trust you to not betray us either. How much of that is taught in our public education these days? When China fell after World War II, they were liberated into communism. And somewhere between 60 and 80 million dissidents were killed in China. Same thing in Cuba. Same thing in North Korea, same thing in Venezuela, same thing in Cambodia. There is no such thing as nice socialism. You either have freedom or you're ruled by a tyrant. There's nothing in between. By the way, that's why they have worked to take out the middle class. Because in communism, there's only two. There's the 1% at the top that lives like rock stars, and then there's everyone else that's broke and starving, and we're just the mindless rabble. That's not taught in public education anymore. But that is what communism is. By the way, today, as they are continuing to rehash the 1619 Project and sins of two centuries ago, which, by the way, were not unique to the United States. Slavery goes all the way back to Genesis when uh, uh, Joseph was sold by his brothers to the Midianite slave traders, and, and the Jews were slaves in Egypt. There have been slaves of all colors and races. There are more slaves in the world today than there ever was 200 years ago. Some 47 million slaves today. 
Five of the top ten enslaved countries are in Africa, where blacks are enslaving other blacks. That's today, but that doesn't matter. Those black lives don't matter because you can't blame America for those. Understand that today in China, they are trying to exterminate. Now, we are not Muslim. And, of course, you know full well that I do not believe that Allah is Yahweh. However, the what, how they, Uyghur, Uyghur, what, what, Uyghur, 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 thank you. Muslims, some one million in China today. I'm not talking about Hitler in 1942. I'm not talking about America in 1619. Today, a million Muslims in China are in extermination camps. But boy, you won't read anything about that in the New York Times, will you? You won't see that on MSNBC or CNN because that doesn't fit the storyline. Because America is the root of all evil in all the world. I'm sorry, I chased a rabbit. Book Live Not By Lies deals with the testimonies of Christians who live behind the iron curtain of communism in the Soviet Union and in the Soviet bloc nations. These Christians were imprisoned. They were brutally tortured. They were martyred because they refused to accept the lies or deny the truth. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would not, in fact, they could not compromise their faith. They would not, they could not deny that which they knew was true. Within the book, a Russian Baptist preacher named Yuri Sipko, who spent decades suffering persecution under communism, said this, take note of it, without being willing to suffer, even die for Christ, it's just hypocrisy. It's just a search for comfort. Now, I don't want to step on toes, but think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Yet, how do we evaluate church today? Which church is most comfortable? Which preacher preaches most comfortable, soothing, psychologically encouraging messages? Which church has the most entertaining music? Which church has the children's area that looks most closely like Disneyland? Now listen, I'm all for Christians having fun. We should have more fun than anybody because we know that the worst thing that can happen to us is the best thing that happens to us. But it should be in this order. Facts, faith, fellowship, and all of that should lead to some fun. If you're choosing a church is based upon fun first, then where will your faith be or your children's faith be when it stops being fun? You want your kids to grow up and plan to get married and live life together as long as it's fun? Get a good career and go to work as long as it's fun. Raise your kids as long as it's fun. Take responsibility as long as it's fun. This book makes this quote from Soren Kierkegaard. The fan or the admirer never makes any sacrifices. He always plays it safe. 
though in words, phrases, songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ, yet he renounces nothing. He will not reconstruct his life and will not let his life express what he supposedly admires. By the way, that quote came from over a century ago. Jesus said, in this life you will have, you shall have tribulation. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, count the cost first. Jesus said, any man who wishes to save his life must first be willing to lose it. He didn't promise his treasure on earth, but he promised his treasure in heaven. He didn't promise temporal happiness, but spiritual joy. He didn't promise us sexual license, but fulfillment within the marital covenant. He didn't promise to be a genie in a bottle to give us temporal happiness, but He called us to obedience to take up our cross daily and to live our lives in a way to bear witness. Martus, to bear witness of Him and to glorify Him. Paul said to the church in Corinth that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live to themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been easy to be a Christian in America. Numerically, we've never been stronger, but spiritually, we have never been weaker. Jesus is not looking for fair weather fans. He wants followers. And if times get tough or tougher, fans of Jesus will quickly deny Him and make compromises. Let me share with you what's going on today. This was yesterday in Christianity Today in Edmonton, Alberta. Grace Life Church, after shifting to live stream for the first few months of the pandemic, resumed worship over the summer and has met every Sunday without incident. But authorities repeatedly flagged the church for not capping attendance at 15% of capacity... By the way, we celebrated the Supreme Court's ruling a week ago. It was a loss. All they did was say that the California churches could have 25% capacity. By what authority in the Constitution can they rule that we can only have 25% capacity in our church? They can't. And until we Christians stand up and say no, they're going to continue to run roughshod over us. But authorities repeatedly flagged the church for not capping attendance at 15% of capacity, requiring masks or social distancing, as required by health regulations in Alberta. Grace Life had been fined $1,200 in December, but this month officers found the church again in violation and issued an undertaking requiring Coates, their pastor, to comply. When the church met as usual last Sunday, seven days ago, they called for his arrest. Coates was preaching. You were talking about a pastor that engages the culture. He's one of us, Brother Dan. He was preaching on Romans 13, 1 through 4, and a message titled, Directing the Government to Its Duty. You know, he is in jail right now. Why? Because he didn't cap his attendance at 25%. Didn't require his people to wear masks. Folks, consider what's happened in the last 12 months. 12 months ago, we were at an all-time economic high. Unemployment was at record lows in every category. China was tanking. 
We were pressing China to release and quit persecuting Christians and Muslims. And having a president that actually believed in being the president of America was an unpardonable sin. And over the last 12 months, we have witnessed things that I never saw. We have got friends in California today, John MacArthur, Jack Hibbs, Rob McCoy. They are all criminals. Why? Because they're doing what we're doing. They're having church as usual, like the church has always done for 2,000 years. But that's now against the law. Did you ever think we'd see that? Folks, understand, this whole thing, this climate crap, and this COVID, here's what you've got to be afraid of, ladies and gentlemen. This is what we've seen now a year into it. Ages 1 to 19, if you happen to catch the virus. Now, this doesn't even take it into account those that never get sick. You've got a 99.97 chance of survival. If you catch the virus and you're from ages 10 to 49, I didn't complete that slide. Go ahead and take a picture of it. You need to Facebook that, send it out. Drive them crazy. When you send pictures and memes, they can't filter it as easily. 99.98% survival if you catch the virus. Between 50 and 69, you've got a 99.5% survival if you catch the virus. Over 70, 94.6% survival. By the way, 41% of all deaths are in nursing homes. Well, there's the surprise. I would be willing to wager that most deaths are probably that age group. 95% of all deaths are over 70 years of age. What is shocking about any of that? Yet what have they accomplished? And understand, if you knew anything about Marxism, we tried to teach on it. If you're in this church, hopefully you know something. The middle class, private property ownership is the enemy. Because the middle class has enough resources to come together and throw off the tyrant. But if all you are is ruled, if all you are are slaves, then you can't do anything. They have destroyed. I was driving, Cindy and I drove past Tinseltown the other night going to meet some folks for dinner. And I looked at it, and there were just a few cars in the parking lot. I thought, you know, the businesses that are lucky enough to survive this, by the time this is over and done, they're all going to be so laden in death, debt that they probably won't survive for long. Wiped out the entire middle class over this. If it wasn't for politics, why don't we keep politics out of science? You know why. But if you took politics out of science, if you acknowledge that they're in the beginning God, rather than in the beginning there was a big bang out of nowhere, out of all this randomness came all this law and order. When you take politics out, when you take politics out of science, then you conclude there are only two genders, male and female. When you take politics out of science, you conclude that there is no such thing as spontaneous generation. Life doesn't just sleep into existence out of nothing. Scientifically, we know that. When you take politics out of science, we wouldn't even have been aware that this was anything more than this year's virus. And our doctors wouldn't have been afraid to practice medicine by intimidation of others, including the CDC and the AMA, and our doctors would have prescribed things like hydroxychloroquine and zinc that cure this simple virus. 
But then we wouldn't have been able to destroy the middle class, castrate the church in America, which, by the way, they thought was going to be a lot tougher than it was. We folded up real quickly. Change the entire election system and steal an election to get America back in line to global government. Now we've got churches that are still closed. Folks, we're not trying to defy anybody. But apparently, we must defy uh, their medical wisdom. We haven't done anything. This is a, boy, aren't you glad you've got a place that you can be normal for three hours a week, for five hours a week? This is part of, of this book that you'll enjoy reading. Even in the communist bloc, you've got to hang on to truth and refuse to turn loose of it. We've prayed for revival in America. And in the midst of our comfort and prosperity, it hasn't come. But perhaps it is. Perhaps God is about to answer our prayer for revival, but just like in Acts 8, God has to get us out of our comfort zone first. Let me ask you, Fairview Baptist, are you ready for this? Liberty Orlando, are you ready for this? Those of you that follow us in small groups across the country, even around the world, are you ready to bear witness for the truth? The church in America is about to experience the refiner's fire. Understand there's a beautiful illustration. The refiner would bring the silver to a liquid the impurities or the dross would float to the top and the refiner would scoop off the dross until he could clearly see his image in the reflection. The church in America is going to go through the refiner's fire. And at the end of the day, we will, in fact, hey, there will be a sifting there will be a lot of fans that are out the door and gone. But the church, the church's finest hour is in front of us. Where God will bear witness through us. And we'll go through some fire until He sees His image clearly in us. Jesus will be glorified. Galatians 2.20 and we close. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We're going to have a hymn of invitation here, ladies and gentlemen. And here is what I want all of you to consider. Nobody's checking your mail. Nobody can read your thoughts. This is just you and your mind and your heart, you and the Lord. Are you a fan? And as soon as it gets tough, we won't see you again. You'll be back in a church that's fun, where you don't have to take a stand and risk losing your job or exposing yourself. Or are you a follower? Are you ready to take up your cross daily for Him?